Well, good morning, good morning. How are we doing today? Good. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free, if we haven't met. I'd love to connect with you after the service. Great to be together today. We're in week two of a little three-week mini-series titled Simply Beautiful, in which we're looking at kind of who we are as a church. Uh, last week we looked at our, our mission statement and our vision statement, and today we're going to look at a little bit of our core values, and next week look at the idea of advancing forward for the kingdom of God. And uh, so grateful, though, that you're here today. We're going to jump right in. We're going to be in Psalm 34 today. If, uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn there with me? And you can get there on your phone or your tablet or your paper copy of the scriptures as I have. However you do it is just fine. Psalms is right in the center of the Bible. If you come to the book of Job, go over to the right just a little bit. If you go to Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, go to the left just a little bit. Psalm 34, a psalm of David. What we're going to do here as well we get started is seek to answer the question, uh, how do we grow just a little bit deeper spiritually? That's it. That's all I'm going to do today in the next 35 minutes. How do we grow a little bit closer to the God who describes himself as fullness of joy? The, the Bible says about, about God that in my right hand is fullness of joy. In my presence are pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 16 about our God. If that's true, and if you would like a little bit more joy, hello, all of us, right? How do we grow a little bit closer to that God in whom is the fullness of joy? We'll try to attack that question here today, drawing a little bit deeper to God's presence. We feel like we're up to our ears in options today. So many different choices no matter where you go. You think about the spiritual life by itself. You have you version and Olive Tree and probably a dozen or so Bible apps you can have on your phone. There's probably 10 or 11 really good English translations of the Bible to choose from. You have three different worship services here at Carney Free. There's men's groups, women's groups, life groups. You ever just feel like, where do I start? Just overwhelmed by options. If we're not careful, the church can feel a little bit like the condiment aisle at the grocery store. So many different choices. You ever go through the condiment aisle at the grocery store and say, man, I just thought I was coming here for barbecue sauce. I didn't realize I'd have to look through 150 options. Or you go to the store and while you're there, your wife calls and says, honey, pick up a bag of chips. And you say, Okay, I'm looking at a 30-yard display of chips. Okay, <laughs> what kind, honey? Potato. Okay, now I'm looking at a 20-yard display of chips. What kind, honey? Yeah, I mean, just unbelievable the amount of options that we live with today. And if you're like me at all, sometimes it can provoke this paralysis analysis. You're not even sure where to start. And that can apply to the spiritual life as well, that we're not even sure sometimes where to start. So this morning, if you are a newer Christian, or maybe you've, you would not even consider yourself a Christian, that's fine. We're so glad that you're here. 
You, you come and you say, I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more about Christ. I'd like to begin growing a little bit. Or, or maybe someone, you, you've been someone who is a Christian for a long time, but you realize that you're a little bit stuck. You've kind of run into a bit of a rock, a bit of an obstacle, and you realize you need to get around that so that you can continue to grow spiritually. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 34 as I think King David provides us with a few clues on how we can begin to do just that. You'll find Psalm 34 on the screen, or if you have your Bible, you can follow along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. One of about ten good versions. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off from the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Would you pray with me as we open up this beautiful psalm? Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the power and the beauty of this beautiful hymn. We thank you, Lord, that you inspired King David to write this psalm, and we get to learn from it today. I ask, God, that you would open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. We have all different kinds of things in our minds right now. Many of us are thinking of what's coming this afternoon, or lunch after church. We're thinking about troubles we have in our families, or what's coming tomorrow at work. We're thinking about those who are affected by the hurricane in South Texas. We pray for all of that, Lord. We ask for your help and your protection to those who are suffering today. And we trust that you have something for us from this passage. 
And so we invite you to speak. Word of God, please speak to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so as noted already last week, well, we looked at this idea of transformation through our mission of building a a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people through this vision statement of every person matters. Today, we're looking at this idea of depth. How do we go a little deeper with the Lord? The very first thing, though, that we do if we want to grow deeper well with the Lord is clear the path. Clear the path. Spiritual life begins with a commitment, not toward busyness, but towards focus. We got to drill down. We got to put the spotlight on the spiritual life if we desire to grow spiritually. We need to focus on only a couple things. People, I've noticed over my years as a pastor, have this mystical sense of what it means to grow spiritually. They think that perhaps you need to have a robe on. Or maybe you need a Bible college degree. Or maybe you need to be one of those people who has the capacity to pray for two or three hours a day. That is not the case. You can grow spiritually much in the same way as you grow in any other area of life. It begins with setting a goal. You set a goal that you say, I would like to draw a little bit closer to God than I currently am. I'd like to work through the present obstacle that I'm facing in my life such that I experience more of God's provision for my life as I get to know him a bit better, as I get to assimilate his word into my heart. You set a goal. You eliminate distractions after setting that goal. Friends, the key to concentration is elimination. If you're the kind that takes notes, you might want to take note of that. The key to concentration is elimination. If you want to grow in an area, you must eliminate distractions and focus in on it. Life gets so busy Just the basics of our bank account and our kids and school or work and parents and in-laws, just the basics occupy about 95% of our time, don't they? If you have 5% left, you got to set a goal with what you're going to do with it and focus in on that, eliminate other distractions. Then the next thing that you want to do as you clear the path is get a few people around you, one or two or three others who can help keep you accountable for that goal who love you, and so they say, you know what, I care about you enough that I want to help you to pursue this spiritual growth area. I believe in you, and I'm going to encourage you, and I'm praying for you, and when you get off course, I'll help you get back on course. I always have two or three people in my life who have permission to do that for me. Hopefully that comes through our men's groups, our women's groups, our life groups. Don't know what it will be for you, but But we have to have people around us because being a lone ranger Christian is impossible. And then as you see growth in that area, whatever it is, pause, give thanks to God, and celebrate. Throw a party as you see that God is changing you far from the inside out. 
The how we grow spiritually is the same way we grow in a sport. It's the same way we grow in a job or in school or in our marriage or in our parenting. You eliminate distractions. You focus in. You bring a couple people around you and make in-course corrections. What we see in Psalm 34 is a man who has experienced the fruit of such growth. He experiences joy in the presence of his father because he has learned to dwell with his father over time. He now knows the sweetness and the beauty of God. He's tasted it. He sees it because he spent a lot of time with God. Now, David was, of course, the second king of Israel. Let's do a little bit of talk in church time. Who was the first king of Israel? Anyone? Yeah, a man named Saul. And how did Saul feel when David became king? Ain't too happy, right? Quite jealous of David. And so Saul, if you remember in the Bible, he starts to seek after David's life. And he's hunting him down, trying to kill him. And as he is hunting him down, trying to kill him, David escapes from Saul, and he goes to the land of the Philistines, because he figures, Saul won't come and find me here. But the thing about the Philistines is, they also wanted David's life, so it was a dangerous thing for him to do. He goes to the land of the Philistines, and why did the Philistines want David's life? Who did he kill? Who did David kill? Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. Gath is the capital of Philistia, okay, the Philistines. You getting all this? Okay, so he, he goes to Philistia where he hides out, and as he hides out, he encounters the king of Philistia who wants to avenge his greatest soldier, Goliath. He wants David's head. It's really, really interesting that um, as Saul is hunting David down. David has a number of opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't do that. Uh, David chooses to respect the anointing that God put on Saul sometime again, sometime ago, even if that throne no longer was on Saul's head. It's really a beautiful thing for, for us to learn from. Even if someone is in power that you don't care for, you still respect the position. I would imagine that David still would pray for Saul, even as Saul attacks his life. This would be great for Republicans and Democrats alike to apply in our day that we pray for our kings, whoever might be in power. That's another sermon for another day. But David, again, is running far from Saul, and as he's running from Saul and he escapes into um, Philistia, it says here, uh, it provides us a little bit of commentary at the top of uh, Psalm 34. My Bible says this. Of David, a psalm of David, when he had changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Okay, what's that? Well, the cross-reference there is 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. Let me read that for you. Okay, he's, he's fleeing from Saul and he lands in the hands of Abimelech, also called Achish. And David rose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he devises this little plan. And then it goes on. 
So he changed his behavior before them, and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why, why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David's got, got to be thinking here as the Philistines are around him that they're going to avenge him for killing Goliath. And so as he's processing that, he pretends to be a madman in front of King Achish, King Abimelech, sorry for all these names, but provides the context. He pretends to be a madman in front of them, and what do they do? They dismiss him. King Achish says, I already have plenty of crazy people around me. He dismisses David. Now, if David was in his flesh, he would be led to believe my astuteness. My cleverness, my great acting has saved my life. But instead, he pauses and he reflects and he writes this psalm of praise and adoration to God because he recognizes it wasn't his cleverness that brought him out of Achish's hand, it was the provision of God. Verse 4 of Psalm 34 says this, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. It goes on, verse 6, it says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So David pens this psalm, understanding that he's merely a beggar before God, and all he can do is lead his fellow Israelites into the throne room of God where they also can find the bread that he has found, okay? He's a beggar. He might be a king. He might be one of the most powerful people on the earth, but he says, I sought the Lord, and the Lord answered me. Friends, the beginning, the middle, and the end of spiritual growth is this. It's recognizing that power does not come from my flesh, it comes from God. You are the vine. I am merely a branch, we say to Jesus. You are, the br- you are the vine. We're merely branches. I will not trust in flesh alone. So David once again says, this poor man cried. The Lord heard and delivered him. Uh, we, we might put it this way. Life begins with a cry and then a hug. Life begins with a cry and then a hug. Okay, all the moms in the room, raise your hand. All the moms who have delivered a baby, raise your hand. You know life begins with a cry, right? Maybe first it begins with a little swat on the bottom. But come on, we don't need to get so technical. It begins with a cry, and then that baby goes into the warm embrace of his mother's chest. Of her mother's chest. Begins with a cry, and then the warm embrace of a hug. This is true for biological life, and this is true for our spiritual life. It begins with a cry out to God Most High and then an embrace from Him. Martin Luther said that all of life is one of repentance. The only thing that the Christian brings to the table is repentance. We bring empty hands 
and our sins. And with them, the cry for help. I find this so fascinating that King David is a governor for two million people. He's one of the strongest men on earth. He has great military might. He has great wealth. He has all that a man could possibly have. And yet three times in Psalm 34 it says, I cried to the Lord. God, would you please give us kings who know how to weep? Give us kings who cry, who recognize that we don't have enough in us. Listen, just a couple of these examples. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and, he, he, and, and his ears are toward their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. We cry, God's response is he hears and he delivers us. One of the great promises of Scripture for us is we can draw near to God and he promises that he will draw near to us. Indeed, the moment that we draw near to God, we find that he's already been drawing near to us. Look at verse 18 here. This is one of the the greatest promises in all the Scriptures. In fact, let's read this out loud together. Would you please join me? You'll see Psalm 34, 18 on the screen. Join me. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Are you brokenhearted today? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is a promise that we can count on. Now we can go to a passage like we're looking at here and we see that God immediately delivered David from Saul and from Abimelech. And sometimes he does that. But we also know there are many other times in scriptures, indeed many times in King David's life that he called on the Lord and nothing happened. He called on the Lord again and seemingly nothing happened. And again and again and again. And what David experienced is God didn't immediately provide deliverance. What God did instead was he gave his presence. He gave his presence. David had two terribly rebellious boys, one of whom sought his life. And David had to deal with that for many, many years. Some of you have been dealing with things for many years that you've been calling out to God for. And you got to know today, as you listen to Psalm 34, 18, that he's near to the broken heart and he saves those who are crushed in spirit, that sometimes he saves immediately, sometimes he delivers immediately, and other times he offers the gift of his presence to get us through. What did Jesus say? Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Psalm 34 is actually speaking of Jesus here. Verse 20 says, he keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Doesn't that sound like Jesus on the cross? Not one of his bones were broken? This is a royal psalm that is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah who we now get to experience. 
It's what David experienced, and yet at the same time, it's a prophetic witness that it's speaking of the reality of Jesus for us, that he's near to the brokenhearted, and still today he saves those who are crushed in spirit. I'm looking over this room, and I see people here who have been crushed in spirit. I know there are many people in this room right now as I'm speaking, I can think of their stories of how God got them through, sometimes by an immediate deliverance, but more often by the gift of his presence, the gift of his people to sustain them in the midst of suffering. Now the goal, if we want that, if we want the sustaining hand of God, the presence of God, the goal must be, how do I grow deeper spiritually with my Lord? How do I take it seriously? Uh, I'll admit on the, front, uh, on the front end here that uh, this is harder for us to do today than it was in David's day. Okay? I'm not one to say that our day is the most difficult generation. That's not true. There's something difficult about every generation. There's something challenging about every generation. But, but this is part of what is challenging about our generation. David didn't have 150 choices in barbecue sauce. We do. And in yogurt, and in cereal, and in Bible apps. And the expectation in David's day was not that your three kids would each compete in three sports, play piano, and all the while maintain a 3.9 GPA. We live in this day that is just a dizzying pace in which multitasking is expected and busyness is prioritized. I was talking to a man though this week about that and he says, it's satanic what we do to our kids, what we expect from our kids. And I think he's right. Culture says you have to be always multitasking. Culture says you have to be always busy. It's interesting, when you're multitasking, are you actually productive? Usually not. You're hyperactive, but you're probably not productive. And certainly when you're overly busy, I promise you will not be deep. And tragically, many churches have not served as a prophetic countercultural witness that says, you know what, we're, we're going to offer something different. We're going to offer something better. Instead, what many churches have done is just mimicked culture at large. And we get people on the same hamster wheel that culture gets people on. At Carnegie Free, we don't want to do that. We're about spiritual depth, not spiritual busyness. I love the way the psychologist uh, Carl Jung put it. Carl Jung was not a Christian. He certainly was not a prophet. But he was most definitely prophetic when he said, busyness is not of the devil, busyness is the devil. You see, if the enemy to your soul cannot force you to sin, he'll make you busy. Because if you're overly busy, you're not thinking of the Lord. And so as we seek to step off the treadmill, here's a pathway. Let me just provide you with our pathway. You might have one of your own, but this is our church's pathway for spiritual growth as we set this goal of gaining greater spiritual depth and pursuing the Lord's transformation. It's simply this. 
We have these four core values. Let me explain them to you real quickly. The first one is truth. We believe truth is objective, and objective truth actually transforms lives. When you know that your life is settled on the objective truth of Christ, that it's actually true with a capital T, not my preference with a lowercase t, but actually true, that provides stability. Second, we believe in the gospel. And the gospel is not good religion. It's not a bunch of rules. It's good news. It's great news for changing our lives, for letting us know that we are brought into God's family through the blood of Christ, that he saved us by his grace through nothing that we could do. He invites us into his family. And no matter what bad thing you might have done in the past, he, he says, I love you and I want you. I want you to be a part of my family. And there's no shame or guilt anymore in my kingdom. That's the gospel. Then community. And community is more than a meeting. It's the context for life change. I know this many, many times, but because we need other people in our lives that are moving in the same direction as us toward Christ, the Christian life is simply too difficult to do on our own. But in a great community, our lives change. And then finally, mission. And the mission of the church, contrary to popular belief, is not bringing people to the church building. The mission of the church is to make disciples. It's that each of us would grow to become followers of Christ, apprentices of Jesus, more and more. And so each of us would have some kind of mission that's helping people to do just that. Now, our model for discipleship just uses those four words. We don't want you to have to memorize all different kinds of words. Just use these four words, and that provides our model, our goal for discipleship, for spiritual depth. And what I, would like to tell, what, I, what I want to tell you, though, this morning is the same thing I've, I've said on a number of different occasions. If you do these three things, you will grow spiritually. If you make it a priority to be here on Sunday morning, either in this service or the bilingual or over in the venue, you be here on Sunday morning, you worship with God's people, you will get a steady dose of the gospel and truth. And that's steadying for life. You get into a life group, a women's group, or a men's group, just one of those and that will provide you with a great community in which you can decompress. You can process the scriptures together. You can talk about the things that were confusing about my messages. And on and on. You do that together in community. And you get a second touch with the things that we learn on Sunday morning. And then finally, yeah, you find some area of mission. Some area of service. So cool to know that over the past month, 59 more people have found their area of mission in the church. Just one. Find one area of mission in the church because we need to serve with our hands. We need to learn with our minds, with our heads. And we need to grow in our hearts. These three together incorporate head and heart and hands. If you leave out the hands, you'll get spiritually fat, not spiritually fit. We got to exercise, right? You leave out the mind, you won't keep growing intellectually. You leave out the heart, you won't keep growing spiritually and emotionally and relationally. We need all of these. Just do one of each of those. Just one of each. Now, I mean, there might be some who have bandwidth in their lives to do two of one of those. Okay, that's fine. But I am promising you that you will grow with Christ into deeper depth if you do one of each of those and you need not burn out. That can be the pathway toward your goal of spiritual depth. It's really that simple.
You look at those in a circle again. Do one of each of those before two of any of those on a consistent basis. Now, I, I know in the church, well, what happens, well, when pastors talk about this, people almost always think, oh, there's pastor so-and-so Tell me what more he wants from me. Right? Come on, I know. I've been around church long enough to know. I don't want this from you. I want it for you. I don't want anything from you. What I want for you is the kind of spiritual depth that can overcome the obstacles that we all face and bring us to a depth with Christ that we know in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what I want for you. I don't want anything from you. It's the goodness of Jesus. Now to get to that, what we need around each of those three environments is this critical bubble called prayer. The whole of Psalm 34 is a prayer. And once again, King David is writing this prayer in adoration to God who's been with him in the midst of a great trial. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and I thought of this new sport called knockerball. Have you ever seen knockerball? Well, raise your hand. Anyone? Okay. Uh, many of the college students did because we had a C20 gathering here last Sunday, and a bunch of the athletes from the university did knockerball in which they're slamming into each other at a great pace. You look at that, it's kind of like football meets helicopter parenting. <laughs> Got great athletes trying to hurt each other, but they have a nice protective bubble wrap around them. That's prayer, friends. That's prayer. Prayer is so much more than asking God to fulfill our needs. It's so much more than asking God to answer our needs for healing or to overcome sickness for our second cousin twice removed. It might include that, but it's so much more than that. Prayer is this means for us to surrender to God, to say to God, I need you. No matter what my activity, I need you. And here's the deal. Any of the things that I just noted, any of the different environments that I just noted, if you do them without prayer, they become work. They become drudgery. They become a pain in the... That's what happens. Or else they become a source of pride, a source of power, a source of legalism. Just think about it. Truth without prayer becomes a megaphone for yelling at people. Gospel without prayer can be good religion as opposed to good news. Community without prayer can be mere socializing at best and gossip at worst. And mission without prayer can be this opportunity to pat myself on the back for all I do. Now, we want to bring prayer to each of these, to envelop them in prayer such that we recognize, God, I need you in this. I surrender to you in this. I want this to be a spiritual activity, not merely an activity out of my flesh. Let me wrap this up here. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. Those who look to him are radiant. Then verse 8. Oh, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Taste and see that our God is good. Friends, if life isn't working out too well for you right now, can I encourage you to give this a try? You'll like it. I promise you'll like it. You'll taste and see that our God is good. You ever wonder why so many Christians just kind of lack joy? I remember Pastor John Strubhar. He was the interim pastor here for about nine months before I came. Remember him? He was such a funny man. Great pastor. But he had this line in one of his sermons, which I'll never forget. He said, some Christians, you look at them, it looks like they've been weaned on lemon juice and spent the rest of their life sucking on a dill pickle. They just have no joy. They need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And to get there, in order to taste and see that the Lord is good, you need a plan. You need a goal. You need focus. You need to eliminate distractions in order to increase concentration if you would like a little bit more shine of radiance on your face this week, as I do, make this your goal. Worship, community, mission. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you that when you sent Jesus, you didn't decide to save us from our sins and then consign us to a life of drudgery for the rest of our lives. But rather, when you sent your son Jesus, you gave us good news. You promised your Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in us is joy. We recognize, God, that that's dependent on our dwelling with you. Every testimony of the Scripture says, keep in step with the Spirit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I am your good shepherd and me you shall not want but we need to be in you. Sometimes I fear that Christians come to you for salvation, but then they just live the rest of life out of the flesh. And that'll fall short. It'll leave us in a place that is absent your joy. So Father, along with my friends here in this room, we, we say we want more of you this week. If, if you'd like more of Christ this week, more of what this passage describes, that you say, I, I want to taste and see the Lord is good a little bit more this week, would you just raise your hand right now? Yes, thank you, Lord. Like all of us, all of us want to taste and see the Lord is good. And maybe you're in a place today that you feel like you're crushed. You're broken hearted. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. 
Oh, Father, I pray for those who have their hands raised right now who are crushed and they're brokenhearted. You say that you draw near to those who are brokenhearted, and I ask that you do so right now by your grace. God, would you deliver them? Would you grant them your love? Would you grant them your sustaining power right now? Some you might deliver from this right now, and you're able to do so. I ask that you would in Jesus' name. And others, you might just give your sustaining power and your presence. Give us faith to receive that, God. Give us faith to receive that. Oh, we love you. Make our faces more radiant as we look to you now. Even as we worship, we want to give you all the praise, God. All the praise to you.